And, you know, our society is so polarized. It's about us and them. And we need to make it less us and them. You know, they're not the enemy. They may disagree with us, but they're not the enemy. And we need to move away from that. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Ken Keithley. Today, our own Nathaniel Williams will talk with George Yancey about the racial divide in America. And after that, we'll have another edition of our segment on my bookshelf. But first, it's time for our segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines like news, sports, pop culture, or business, all from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about Russia. Russia and its president, Vladimir Putin, have been in the news recently, especially with the death of Russian opposition leader uh, Alexei Navalny. Uh, here to discuss this uh, with us is Dr. Amanda O'Quinn. Dr. O'Quinn is Associate Professor of History at the College at Southeastern, and she holds a PhD in history. Uh, she lived in Russia and uh, is our resident expert on Russian history. Uh, Dr. Quinn, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Who was Alexei Navalny? Yeah, so it's you know it's such fresh news. It even sounds strange to me for you to say who was. Like I'm still getting used to that. So right. Alexei Navalny um, was a Russian citizen. Um, he was born during the time of the Soviet Union, and I think was a young teenager when it broke up in the early 1990s. But his dad had served in the Red Army, so you know had been loyal patriots to the Soviet Union. But he had come to some conclusions um, about, I think, Soviet politics and where Russia might could go to the, in the future when he was in college and maybe moving on into his 20s and became a political activist. He was one of the leading members and possibly founders, I'm not sure on that, in the late or mid to late 1990s of a liberal democratic political party there that was called Yablaka. Um, which means apple in Russian. So I'm not even mm. sure of the significance of that, but he was one of the leaders of Yablaka and was in that party um, for a while. I think had left that party, but just continued to speak out against corruption in the Russian government, oftentimes zeroing in on Vladimir Putin and his cronies. And as such, of course, drew a lot of ire from them. And so he was arrested I'm going to say for the first time in the earlier, maybe like 2009 to 2010, something like that, and has been arrested on and off. And if you keep up with the news, he was poisoned almost to death in 2020 and somewhat miraculously survived. But it's clear they did not intend for him to survive. And he did um, until about last Friday. Yeah, I remember how that happened. Speaking talking about how he opposed Putin. I remember there, uh, watching the video in which Navalny did an expose on the extravagant lifestyle yes. that Putin lived, yes. you know, that, that his home was valued in the tens of millions of dollars and that wow. he showed how Putin had stolen maybe a billion dollars. And uh, Navalny was certainly brave. I do remember the, how he was poisoned with uh, a, 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 uh, 
military grade right. uh, toxin and that they they managed to have him exported or shipped out to to the west and mm-hmm. it was western med- medicine that may, allowed him to survive one of the amazing things after he survived is that he went back to russia why would he do mm-hmm. that Right. You know, that's a really good question. I don't, I know that he's married, I think since around the year 2000, I'm assume has some children, his parents yes. and family still live there. Yes. So if you have family still there, that's going to be one big reason. And I think in my impression, he was just a Russian patriot. He viewed it as his mission to uh, bring more freedom to Russia, have a more open political system. And that ran him, of course, it's going to put him in the crosshairs of the Putin regime. So why is his death significant then? It's significant. It's also to me as someone who's lived in Russia and loved Russian history, it's also sad. I think it just shows, it really shows us with the Putin regime, no one will be allowed to run publicly afoul of him and continue to do so for a long time. And of course, Navalny did for a really long time and not pay the price. I mean, I guess he's not, I don't have the list of names. He's not the only journalist or political activist dissident who has been killed during Putin's time in office. So why they picked now, I'm not sure. I'm not clear on that. But yeah, there there's yeah. speculation about uh, certain American journalists who who had been there and and left. We can oh, we can wow. speculate about that all day long. Yeah. One thing one thing that I did read that was uh encouraging to me is according to certain reports over the weekend that, that were reporting his death said that uh, over the last few years that he had converted from atheism uh, to Christianity. If that's true, then that is a very bright silver lining to a very dark cloud. What can we learn about this ordeal about Russia in this moment? And, and how would you advise us on how we should pray? Yeah, you know, I would just continue to pray, certainly for his family. From what I understand, his mother and his wife have not succeeded in getting his body for burial. Right. And of course, there's some speculation that, you know, they claim he just felt ill and died, but uh, sudden death syndrome, sudden is death the, syndrome. Yeah. It's yeah, amazing yeah, how yeah. that happens, but there's some speculation. Of course, they're waiting for whatever poison to work its way on out of the system before they release his body. I don't know that speculation, but so I would pray for them, for their grief, that they could get his body back for all the people that must be just incredibly frustrated in Russia by this. Of course, very many people who are political dissidents have left the country. Once Ukraine was invaded, they've moved to other parts of Europe and left when they could. Um, so I would say, especially for the people that are, that are still there. And then we can always pray. I mean, we know that God controls the hearts of, of everyone. We can always pray for Putin and his cronies and people in, that have influence there that God would change their hearts or change circumstances so they can continue to do damage. That's what I would say. Dr. Quinn, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. Southeastern understands that you have a strategic and valuable role to play in getting the gospel to your neighbors and the nations. That's why we offer over 40 degrees at the undergraduate, graduate, and doctoral levels to equip you to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Visit scbts.edu to learn more. This year, our focus at the Center for Faith and Culture is Challenges to Humanity. And one of those categories that is a challenge is the reality of the racial divide. Well, today we're delighted to have with us Dr. George Yancey. Dr. Yancey is a professor of Institute for Studies of Religion and Sociology at Baylor University. 
He has published several research articles on the topics of institutional racial diversity, racial identity, atheists, cultural progressives, academic bias, and anti-religious hostility. That's a lot. He's the author of many books, including Beyond Racial Division, A Unifying Alternative to Colorblindness and Anti-Racism. Dr. Yancey, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Now, tell us a little bit just about yourself, about your story, how you came to faith, about your family. Just talk to us a little bit about who George Yancey is. Yeah, so I became a Christian when I was a sophomore in college. I grew up in the church, and African Americans generally at my age had to grow up in the church. It was, it was expected. But I really didn't, I really didn't accept Christ. I, you know, I was, tr- was trying to be a good boy rather than really having a relationship. And, and it was when I was a sophomore that I went through a period of time where I really struggled with what it meant to be a Christian and is that what I really wanted to do. And, and I had a loneliness that, as I accepted Christ, began to ease and began mm-hmm. to go away. And then, you know, I found fellowship with uh, what at the time was called the BSU, uh, Baptist Student Union. Yeah, yeah. I, know, I think they're called BSMs now. Uh, and that was a very critical, critical part of my discipleship. And so I'm always grateful for that ministry for helping me to grow and such. And you were telling me uh, before the podcast that you uh, have a wife, three young kids. Three so young kids, yes. You're, you're, you're a very busy man then. Yes, yes. <laughs> they, keep, they keep me hopping. That's right. I understand. Me too. Uh, well, today we're going to talk about, uh, again, the challenge of the racial divide. Now, you, in the book we mentioned a little while ago, Beyond Racial Division, you note this. You say that in response to racial division, many in our country kind of flock to one of two responses, either colorblindness or anti-racism. Can you define what we mean by those two terms and kind of what those responses encompass? Sure. Colorblindness is probably easier to define. I mean, basically it means that we should just ignore race and treat everyone equally and be colorblind, be blind to color, be blind to race and have that attitude. So even bringing up race to those with colorblindness is a problem. You know, let's not bring it up and let's treat everyone equal and we'll be good. Anti-racism is a little bit more complicated in that, you know, it's not quite that simple, but, you know, about three years ago with George Floyd and everything, mm-hmm. you saw this, this peak of anti-racism activism. And I read a lot of the books on anti-racism in order to understand what it was, uh, what people were saying uh, about it, not just the, in an academic sense, but in a popular sense. And I would boil it down to three or four propositions that racism is, is epidemic in our society. Uh, it's multifaceted. It's not just overt racism. It's, it's institutionalized that we have to overhaul our society. And then, and this is the one that, that I'm, I'm very comfortable that this is part of anti-racism, but it's part of what causes the problems, that there's different roles for whites and people of color. The role of whites is to do what people of color want them to do. Mm-hmm. And you can see this all throughout the books of anti-racism. And so it's a philosophy that's very proactive as far as challenging racism, as far as trying to deal with racism. Both of them have their problems, but that's where people flock to. So... You mentioned that, that both of them have their problems. Let's, let's do this first. Are there any benefits to either approach? And then what are, what are the problems with those particular approaches, both of them? Yeah, I mean, both of them have benefits to some degree. You know, uh, I, I, I tell people, yeah, colorblindness is problematic because it really does not look at the historical institutional ways race still plays a role in pe- life of people of color. And, you know, that the healing is not complete. There's still wounds out there. And, and you can't just say, ignore those wounds. Mm. On the other hand, look, you know, in my everyday life, 
I'm pretty colorblind when I approach someone. I, I don't try to make presuppositions about who they are. I, I, you know, when I grade my papers, I'm pretty colorblind about that. So as a, I would say as a ethic to live your life, yeah, colorblindness works. As a way to deal with the racial alienation, it doesn't work. And same thing about anti-racism. Anti-racism helps us to have an awareness of how racialized our society is and how problematic some of these institutional historical problems have become. And, and so that awareness is good. I say anti-racism is very good at finding the problems. What mm. it doesn't do very well is, is crafting a usable solution. And there's a lot of reasons why this sort of solution of trying to have whites do what people of color want them to do is very problematic. And uh, it's problematic on a scholarly level, academically. It's also problematic as a Christian, you know, when we understand about human depravity. So the solutions don't work for either one of them, but in certain, in certain venues, they're both useful. Okay, so they both have some value in the sense of you said colorblindness is good as a personal ethic, anti-racism is good at identifying the problems, but neither is fully effective. So, so what do we do? What, yeah. what, what, what's the solution if neither one of these things works yeah. really well? Well, my solution, you know, is what does our Christian faith tell us? The solution should be because both of them, are, I would argue, are worldly, are uh, come out of an enlightenment thinking that we can solve our problems as humans. But we know we can't solve our problems as humans, and and that's where I come to human depravity. Because once you appreciate what human depravity is, you appreciate the solution can't be some group telling the other group what they have to think and what they have to do. Hmm. The solution has to be that we have to listen to each other and work to find solutions that everyone can live with. Not that you'll get everything, but we can live with that solution. And to work together and to find sustainable solutions. So my big push is what I call collaborative conversation. And these are conversations where we build on each other's ideas in order to find solutions. So our conversations are not just how's the weather. They're goal-oriented. We build on each other's ideas. We learn to listen to each other, learn to try to give other people what they need as well as us getting what we need. And we find workable solutions. There's a big lack of that, unfortunately, in our society today. So dialogue is important. Is that what you're saying? Like conversation. Productive dialogue. Productive dialogue. Not just arguing, but productive dialogue. <laughs> productive dialogue. Not social media arguing. Yeah. That tends to be where most of these conversations are happening, though. Not really face-to-face, more on social media. And I glean that you would say that's pretty unhealthy. That's the way that Most you're... social media discussions do not move the ball. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. And there's a reason for I mean, no, you think about it, social media is public, a public space, and so people want to make themselves look good, which means usually putting down the person you're dialoguing with. That's not going to work. You know, I've gone through stages of my life where I was active in social media debates, and now I'm less active, and now I don't have the time for them. And my wife, is, my wife has been very good about helping me to see, hey, you know, what are you doing? I mean, the research is out there, too. But, of course, having someone there say, hey, is this really useful? And a lot of time, most of the time it's not. And so we need to have more productive dialogues. And, and that's why we have to think about how we can have collaborative conversations in order to find out where other people are coming from so that we can work together instead of against each other. This, this productive dialogue, these mm-hmm. collaborative conversations, what does this look like practically? Like I'm just yeah. thinking about, you know, I'm a pastor mm-hmm. and various responsibilities and stuff. What would it look like for me to have this kind of productive dialogue, collaborative conversation? Well, you know, I'm glad you asked that because I've been working on that as an academic because, 
you know, it's one thing to say, here's what should work theoretically. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to figure out how to make it work. And, you know, and, and that's the, the challenge. And so I have worked with churches to uh, do some certain trainings and then to try to collect data. In fact, I'd be willing to work with your church or any church that's willing to, to engage in that. It'd be training people to how to actually listen. So we listen in order to not just to debate, but to understand where people are coming from, how to communicate in an effective way. Because you communicate in certain ways, people can't hear you. Hmm. So how do we communicate in effective ways? And how do we find solutions? How do we work out problems together? And I'm still trying to figure out how to train people well, but I do think that we're going to get to the point where we can have some sort of method of doing this, and then churches can really use, the, use those materials. As you've begun to talk through these kind of productive dialogue, collaborative conversations and begin mm-hmm. to, to implement this and, and work through this, what, what's the feedback you've been getting from different communities you've been working with and, and doing this? Like, what, what are people who are trying to engage in this? Like, what, what kind of feedback are you getting? I'll start with the positive feedback. That's always nice. I think there are people, I would say half the country is tired of the extremists on the colorblindness and the anti-racist. They're tired of it. But they realize there's a problem. They don't know what to do. And those people, I think, appreciate what I have to offer. I'm not saying this is the only option to those two, but it is a, a viable option. And I think people want to figure out how we can have that dialogue. Uh, when, I, when I go to speak, there are people who come up to me and go, you know, thank you. You know, something for me to think about. Uh, how can we have this sort of dialogue? Uh, so I would say half the country, that, you know, if they were exposed to it, and a lot of people are not exposed to it because people who deal with nuance usually don't wind up on Fox or MSNBC. <laughs> Let me just put it that way, or CNN or, sure. or whatever. Now, to deal with my critics on either side, you know, those are colorblind their critique is what they may call it woke or they may call it, uh, you know, they, they say, why are you bringing up race? Because uh, I do deal with institutional racism. You know, you have to. And they, they feel that bringing it up creates problems. So I get that response from them. Those who are anti-racist, they sometimes feel that it's not fair for me to ask people of color to have this sort of dialogue after all of the racial trauma they've gone through, that, uh, that, that that's not a fair thing to do. And so, you know, once again, they go back to, well, whites have to pick up the pail and, and do what people of color want them to do. I have been accused of being too nice to whites for this approach, which I find funny because uh, if you go to my, take my class, we don't sugarcoat. I mean, I will not approach someone in a way that's dehumanizing. But I'm also going to be honest, you know, institutional racism is a problem. If we really want to get into it, if we, we really have to look at our political actions and how we treat people we politically disagree with. And many white Christians are not doing that in a healthy way. And it's turning off people of color. I don't have a problem saying those sort of stuff. But I don't want to say it in a way that dehumanizes people. I don't want to go around and say, hey, you know, y'all are engaging in white supremacy and, and things that I know they can't hear me as soon as I start down that path. Mm. If that's what people want me to do in order to not be too nice, well, then they can wait a long time. Because that's not what I'm called to do. I'm not called to dehumanize other people, no matter their race. So, uh, you know, I mean, if you go down this path, you'll, you'll, you'll catch it from both sides. And, and I guess that's just the way it is. As I hear you talk, it seems like the underlying currents behind this conversation and probably a lot of other conversations are two things. One, the Imago Dei, that we all mm-hmm. have value and worth yeah. because we're created in the image of God. And also the reality of sin in all of its many manifestations, yeah. right, in our lives, in our societies, in our cultures and stuff. Would you say that's accurate, those two? Yeah. I, I mean, part of what drives me beyond the human depravity is 
is the fact that, you know, as Christ, I'm supposed to look at others and their needs as at least as much as I look at my own, if not more. And that comes out of the fact that we're all image bearers. And, you know, one of the things that I, that I think of is, you know, everyone's an image bearer. If they're not in Christ, they're our neighbors. If they are in Christ, they're our brothers and sisters. We need to treat them accordingly. And too often we don't. Mm. Mm. Let's talk to our listeners right now. Imagine there's someone right now who's driving their kid to school, mm. heading to work, et cetera, and they're thinking, man, I, I want to have this kind of productive conversation. I want to be able to deal with the problems, treat people with dignity. Like what practically would you say, say these kinds of things, don't say these kinds of things, or what approach would you, would you encourage them to take in these conversations? Obviously, if we talk with our churches and see if they want to engage in some sort of training, that's good. But even if they don't, you could just take someone out to coffee or, or lunch or something like that who you know disagree with on racial issues, maybe they're of a different race, and then just listen to them. Don't argue. Just listen. And, and what I would call active listening. And you actively listen by asking them, uh, you know, here's what I hear you saying, and you put in your own words. Mm. Can you understand someone from a different perspective? Yeah. Can you understand? And this is not so that you can agree with them, but so that when you talk to them, you know where they're coming from and why they're motivated by what they're motivated. They may want to listen to you. They may not want to listen to you. But at least you understand them, and you cannot talk to them in a productive way. And this is part of a process in which people can undergo. Ideally, I would love to see a, 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 a groundswell of more communities that are engaged in collaborative conversations. And it's obvious that this is, goes beyond just racial issues, that uh, we need to learn how to listen to each other on political issues, on issues of gender, on, on issues of, you know, you can name it. And listen in a way where you don't have to agree. You don't have to agree. But to understand where people are coming from, you do have to listen. It sounds like you're saying we have to do the hard work of getting to know our neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> because I think for a lot of us uh, in, our, in our culture, we're, we're increasingly drawn and connected with people with ideological similarities mm-hmm. over the Internet or whatever. Like we can craft yeah. our own community based on our interests and stuff. And so it's possible for me to know a person – across the world who may share my affinity for Georgia football or for mm-hmm. whatever else that my interests and not know the person living right next door to me. Yeah. And so what you're saying is we got to maybe turn down, maybe not eliminate, but turn down the internet conversation and amp up the relational things with the people right there in our own communities. I think that that is ideally what we would do. And if we, you know, we should be active in our communities and we should be active, you know, I'm not saying we shouldn't be active politically, we should, but we, we should bring it with an element to that, to listen hmm. and to try to find solutions rather than, and you know, our society is so polarized, it's about us and them. And we need to make it less us and them. You know, they're not the enemy. They may disagree with us, but they're not the enemy. And we need to move away from that as, as, a, as a Christian community. It's fascinating, Dr. Anthony. It sounds like we're just kind of scratching the surface of this conversation. There's much more to be said and conversations to be had. Uh, Let me ask you this. We have a a segment in our podcast called On My Bookshelf, in which our guests get to share what they're reading right now or maybe a book that they really enjoy. What is a book that's on your bookshelf that either you're reading or you really enjoy? I rarely have ever read books for fun because I'm an academic. Well, should, that's, that's not fair because some academics actually can read books for fun. It's just I'm just not one of them. <laughs> and maybe, maybe when I retire, I'll start going back to reading fiction because I used to when I was a kid. But a book that I recently read, because one thing I'm trying to study right now is identity politics. That's 
gotten interest in me, and, and I won't go all into it, but uh, I do think that identity politics is a big part of our polarization on the left and the right. And so I've read this book called The Identity Trap, which really was very useful for helping me to understand how identity politics developed. And the writer, he's a critic of identity politics, and he's a critic of identity politics from the left. You know, most crit- criticisms we hear come from the right, but he's a critic from the left. Uh, because of how it interferes with our ability to engage in freedom of speech and to interact with each other. So even though I don't agree with him on everything, I resonate with, with the way he's approached it. And I really appreciate the way that he has helped me to understand why our identity policy has developed and why it is what it is. And so the book's called The Identity Trap by Yaska Mook. And it's a book that I've really appreciated. Excellent. We'll be sure to, to put that on our, our reading list as well. One more time, what's the name of your book and where can people find that book? My book is Beyond Racial Division. You can order it through Amazon. You can order it through University Press. Uh, I don't know if people go to bookstores any longer, uh, but those are the two ways you can order it. Yes. Very good. And how can people follow you and follow the work that you do? My website is georgiancy.com. Uh, as far as following me, you know, I am even though, you know, social media is not the best, but I am on Facebook and, and I am on Twitter. So those are two ways. I mean, I, I do post some things out there from time to time, especially when I publish stuff. I, I'll sometimes post it out on my Facebook page and my Twitter. Excellent. Well, this has been a delight. Dr. Yancey, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed it, give us a five-star rating and a brief review on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next week.